Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Welcome to CounterPoints. I'm Emily Jashinsky here with Ryan Grimm. And there's big news today. Actually, it feels like there's big news every day, Ryan. But the House Speaker Carousel has a new member. And we're going to talk all about Mike Johnson, Mike Johnson, who by the end of today may actually be the Speaker of the House. So we'll bring you that information. We are going to start with updates on the war in the Middle East. We're going to take you through how the White House handled that situation yesterday. We're going to take you to uh, questions about the American presence in Lebanon and attacks that have happened on American troops, according to our government, over the last couple of days. We are going to talk about the plea deal that both Jenna Ellis uh, struck and also news that Mark Meadows was given immunity, He's former chief of staff at the White House. And then we're going to do some really interesting stuff here about Bernie Sanders, John Fetterman, and censorship mm-hmm. of people with kind of heterodox takes on Palestine. So, Ryan, we also have a guest here who's going to talk about one of your pet subjects, and that's psychedelics. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that, too. You know, and this is a, 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 there'll be two guests here. One is a general, uh, a retired general, uh, who is advocating on behalf of psychedelics for, uh, you know, for, for veterans. And it's it, interesting timing because if you guys watched yesterday, Sagar and I covered that wild situation in, where the Alaska Air uh, plane almost went down. Mm. And it turns out the guy is saying that he was on shrooms that's and right. thought he was kind of getting out, he was gonna wake himself up by shutting the plane off. Uh, That's a nightmare for everybody on board, but also for people who are urging that psychedelics be brought out of the shadows. I would argue it means we need better education and regulation around them because we have prohibition and what happened happened. But we're gonna talk to our our guest about that at the end of the show. 
a quick plug. Uh, remember, if you go to breakingpoints.com, become a premium subscriber. You can get the whole uncut show right into your inbox. You can get that early. Uh, second plug, as you'll see up here, I got a second book uh, back here now. Uh, it's, it's out in late November, early December. It's called The Squad. It's about kind of the American... American left over the last couple of years. We'll be talking about that more, but I'm just just a little little subtle reminder in the background there for the looks next good. couple of weeks. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah, good good cover. <laughs> yeah. Good cover. We'll take it. So let's talk about the, the the spiraling war in the Middle East, and let's put up a one here because this is the most kind of bellicose language that we've heard from the United States yet, where they're saying that they will hold Iran responsible for attacks by what it considers to be its proxies, its clients around the region, because you know, Iran has clients uh, in, in Yemen, uh, obviously in Gaza, uh, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq. And previously, the Pentagon and the White House's uh, line had been, look, uh, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. If there is evidence that Iran directed a particular attack, then we will hold Iran responsible for that. But in general, we're not trying to ratchet things up here. This, this is removing some of those qualifications there. What, what did you make of the White House coming out through the Pentagon saying that from, from here forward, attacks on U.S. troops by, proxy, by Iran proxies will be blamed on Iran? Well, let's put A2 up, actually, because I think this gives us some indication of exactly how we should take it. So this is uh, saying correctly, the Pentagon says U.S. troops have been attacked 10 times in Iraq and three times in Syria over the past week. Now, Ryan, if we go to A3, this is a story from The Intercept uh, that basically gets to exactly how many story, uh, how many people mm -hmm. are on the ground in Lebanon, which the government is actually kind of cagey about. Here's the, the quote from uh, the story over at the, over at the Intercept. Um, it's that the White House, in a June, quote, war powers letter to Congress, President Joe Biden noted that, quote, approximately 89 United States military personnel are deployed to Lebanon to enhance the government's counterterrorism capabilities and to support the counterterrorism operations of Lebanese security forces. Uh, and this is operating under what's known as 270E. It's the provision <laughs> of law, 270 ECHO, they call it. Uh, that allows the United States to operate through proxies, through basically unvetted proxies. And so, it, in other words, you might only have 89, we don't know, like this is what they say, you might only have 89 personnel, but how many proxies are those 89 American personnel, you know, equipping, recruiting, uh, training, and operating? And what effect does that create in creating uh, let's say, targets for Hezbollah in Lebanon, what vulnerabilities does it create, and what uh, assets does it give the United States in that region, it shows that there's been this kind of war buildup uh, across the entire region. People might be wondering, wait a minute, we're getting attacked in Syria? Why are we, how are we getting attacked in Syria? That doesn't make sense. Right. We're not at war with Syria. We're not in Syria. Well, yes, turns out we are in Syria. We're in Iraq. We're in Syria. Every place we are, that's an opportunity uh, for some, some group some Iran-backed group to lob shells at us. Well, yeah, exactly. And we can put the next element up on the screen, too, because this gets to it. This is from Ian Bremmer, who says 86,000, approximately, Americans live in Lebanon, 600,000 Americans live in Israel. And to just pause for a moment and, I think, acknowledge that it's, it, from my perspective, entirely likely Iran is behind some of this. Um, there are obvious questions, and I think there's good reason for skepticism about what our government is telling us as it pertains to Iran's involvement. That said, uh, given 
the kinetic conflict now in Israel, given the fact that this is a, a very hot war now in Israel, I think, of course, it's possible that Iran is behind some of this. And I think that actually gets to the threats. We had how many Americans killed in the attacks? Upwards of 30 at this point in the original October 7th attack. Uh, Americans that were held as hostages. Uh, that puts responsibility on the American government and that puts responsibility on the American military. And they are straining ourselves. They're straining the country. They are putting us in a position um, <clears throat> where it makes the escalation of the conflict more and more yeah. dangerous and more and more likely by this sort of cavalier uh, spreading out of troops across the world and particularly across the Middle East that in times of peace, we sort of look the other way. Uh, we don't think about it very much, but it's happening, um, especially because of things like 127 Echo that we don't right. even think about or talk about on a normal day. And now when a conflict spills over into something serious, um, it's an incredibly fragile ecosystem that is really teetering on the precipice of something, uh, a, a massive escalation. Yeah. And to me, th that's why one of the most important things that I think Barack Obama did was successfully negotiate the Iran deal with Russia and with five European countries. The argument that he was making at the time, and he, and he ran over Israel to do it, or is, it was Israel's number one objection to Obama was that he wanted to, that he, that he was inking this Iran deal. His argument was, this conflict isn't working. Constantly ratcheting up tensions is only going to lead to dangerous places. And it's also not preventing them from getting a nuclear weapon. So if we bring Iran into the fold, that they show good behavior, uh, reduce support for their proxies, roll back uh, their, their military nuclear program, and instead, you know, AEI, let, let in the inspectors, to follow their uh, progress of their of domestic kind of industrial nuclear capacity, have Russia involved, have us involved. It brings them into the fold so that they're less likely then to see benefit in some global or regional conflagration. It's the same reason that getting a ceasefire in Ukraine, getting to a truce, getting to a truce there is so important because every day that wars go on, every day that tensions are ratcheted up, unpredictable things can happen. And I think Iran, there's no evidence that Iran directed the Hamas attack. But the fact that Iran and Hamas are connected then just spirals this into the place we are now. And I think that it, is, it isn't often reflected upon enough in Washington that people who advocate for a position, like a hardline approach to Iran, like uh, you know, Israel successfully lobbied Trump to withdraw the US from the Iran deal. So though those hardliners got what they wanted. Although it wasn't very hard. I mean, basically every Republican was opposed to the Iran nuclear deal. So it wasn't as though Israel had right. to push very hard. Oh, absolutely. And and, tr and Trump wanted to do it uh, because Trump it had hated, Obama's name on it. He hated like was, the Iran deal. It was the Obama, you know, Iran nuclear deal. So he's Obama. So he's like, oh, it has, it's Obama's thing. I'm going to undo it. Like that, like, yes, but it, it was Israel's number one priority. But yes, it was very easy. Uh, to convince them to do it. And so he does that. So he got his wish. And then Biden, to his great discredit, di did not get the United States back into the Iran deal. And so I feel like people who got their wish there uh, argued that this was going to be a better step forward. And look where we are. That's what I'm saying. Like, there, there needs to be some accountability for if you get to implement and execute your preferred strategy and it blows up, literally blows up, 
then there should be some reflection on that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I may disagree on the point about the deal, but I think you're raising a really important point about how it, the, the parallel with Ukraine, that like when you have actually other nuclear powers that are attached uh, to proxy wars or attached to conflicts that have become hot wars, we look at just Xi Jinping, and we talked about this, Chris and I talked about this last week, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin were in Beijing last week, uh, peacocking and you know talking about how they're old friends mm -hmm. and whatever you think of you know those two countries uh, they are allied against the United States and definitely against Israel. Uh, they, they try to sort of say that they're going to be the new peace brokers of the world and they're going to step in and try to mediate these conflicts. They haven't done a great job of that so far. Putin started one of them and invaded Ukraine uh, and Xi Jinping has not condemned that. So you know the, the, the prospects for peace in a world order led yeah. by those two uh, I don't think should give anyone much optimism. That said, um, this is a coalescing of like this is a real coalescing of uh, countries against United States hegemony. And that means that this is even more fragile. Uh, that means that you have nuclear powers. Uh, you have North Korea, China, Russia, Iran. Um, and the more people you have fanned out across the world and on what the authority of 127 echo, mm -hmm. it's terrifying. And it is so, so much more fragile um, I think that we realize, I feel like people are recognizing it now, but if something were to, if, if China were to take this opportunity to move on Taiwan, um, and we, we saw them in a conflict with the Philippines, uh, naval conflict mm -hmm. with the Philippines last week, this is, these are dominoes, and you don't always know that a domino is, the first domino has fallen until years later when you look back. And I think it's one of the few good things Obama did on foreign policy, but his argument was this unconditional support for Saudi Arabia, for, uh, for the United Arab Emirates, both of yeah. now which want Know, nuclear programs, right. um, and Israel, which has a nuclear program, uh, and isolation of Iran is not useful long-term for the United States, that it's going, that it's just going to lead to conflict. It obviously wasn't working. No. Yeah, and so uh, they tried to unwind that. Uh, the Washington swamp is so dominated by Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, Israel, and the Republican Party is kind of lockstep uh, with Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and so it reverted back to the mean, and here we are with the world about to blow up. Speaking of the world being about yeah. to blow up, let's actually pivot here and take a look to what look at what John Kirby told White House reporters in a briefing yesterday. He was pushed by one reporter who actually asked him about Barack Obama's Medium post, saying that the Israeli government uh, had basically. Uh, not done enough to uh, mitigate the harms to civilians in Gaza. Uh, and then she also pushed him on Obama saying that cutting off food, water, and electricity in Gaza uh, risked Israel losing global support. Let's take a, watch, uh, take a look at uh, how John Kirby reacted. President, former President Obama shared some of his views about the conflict yesterday. One of the things he said was that uh, the Israelis haven't done enough to avoid killing or injuring civilians as they seek to take out Hamas in Gaza. Does President Biden share that view? President Biden has, since the very beginning of this conversation, uh, been talking to the prime minister, and we have been talking to Israelis at uh, various levels, at the cabinet level and below, um, about 
the, what, what separates us from Hamas as two democracies, and that's respect for human life. That's abiding by the law of war. That's by doing everything you can to try to prevent civilian casualties and collateral damage, and that's an active conversation we continue to have with them. President, former President Obama shared some of his views about the conflict yesterday. One of the things he said was that uh, the Israelis haven't done enough to avoid killing or injuring civilians as they seek to take out Hamas in Gaza. Does President Biden share that view? President Biden has, since the very beginning of this conversation, uh, been talking to the prime minister, and we have been talking to Israelis at uh, various levels, at the cabinet level and below, um, about the, what, what separates us from Hamas as two democracies, and that's respect for human life. That's abiding by the law of war. That's by doing everything you can to try to prevent <clears throat> civilian casualties and collateral damage, and that's an active conversation we continue to have with them. And uh, speaking of those casualty numbers, we have those, if we could put up uh, A5. Of course, uh, Israeli casualties, after, most of them civilians from October, most and most of them on October 7th at 1,400, roughly 200 hostages still held. On the Gaza side, uh, uh, Palestinian authorities saying that 700 civilians killed over the last 24 hours and at least 5,700 killed. We don't have a breakdown between civilians and militants there, uh, overwhelmingly, if you look at the kind of destruction of the of the of of Gaza, you know, north to south, you're going to see massive numbers of civilian casualties. Uh, the the scenes that are coming, the scenes that have come out of October seventh uh, are are you know boggle the mind, mm. and the images that we're seeing out of Gaza boggle the mind. Mm -hmm. Just absolute hell on earth. Those numbers boggle the boggle the mind. What has happened in such a short period of time? And I think they're. A, uh, undercounting uh, significantly. I hope I'm. I hope I'm wrong about that. So you can see where John Kirby is going to increasingly be pressed about this, and I want to read actually from Axios, uh, which is I think kind of reacting to the back and forth yesterday. They don't say they are, but uh, they're reporting this morning. President Biden, despite full-throated support for Israel and its right to strike Hamas, has methodically and meticulously delayed the expected invasion of Gaza. U.S. officials tell us that's Axios. Biden dangled high-level visits, military support, and public backing to buy time in Gaza. He also made plain that America doesn't want Israel to act impulsively or without considering U.S. concerns. That's an interesting thing to be leading off Axios's newsletter with, Ryan, mm -hmm. the morning after John Kirby is pressed in such a public way on right. uh, the, the fate of so many civilians in Gaza. Right. And if you, you watch that clip and you understand the dilemma that Kirby and the Biden administration and Israel are in when it comes to the siege of Gaza, there is... Yeah nobody out there who's going to say, you know what, yes, it does sound reasonable to cut off food, energy, and water from a population that was two million at the start. Right. Like, sure, that, sure, we understand that from a military perspective. Nobody. It's, it's utterly indefensible. Israel's argument that they've come up with so far is, well, Hamas has some energy. They have some fuel and they're using it for rockets. Okay, that's terrible. Bad for Hamas. But that's a tiny amount of fuel. Like that, that is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the entire enclave being blocked off. We're talking about people because the salination plants are down, drinking salty, dirty water. It, you know, the UN says you need roughly 15 liters minimum of water for all purposes, hygiene, drinking, uh, et cetera, just for basic survival. The average Gazan is down to less than one liter of water a day. Like one, like the, 
That's the, so that's for everything, mm-hmm. uh, start to finish for 24 hours. You can't survive on that. And there's nobody out there who thinks that there's any kind of military justification for that. It's also just straight up illegal. It's like against international laws of war. And so, and it's why I think Obama was, you know, Obama didn't talk about apartheid, didn't talk about, you know, he just, he laid out that, that, I think that's why he zeroed in on that because it's, there's just no counter argument to it. That's, and that's where Obama likes to go. Yeah. Is a place that is uh, kind of comfortable, but also critical. Mm-hmm. Let's actually, I, I know that we don't like to skip around, but if we could, because it fits so perfectly with what Ryan just said, go to A8. This is another John Kirby quote uh, that has drawn a lot of criticism mm-hmm. from the briefing yesterday. If we could roll A8, that would be great. It is war. It is combat. It is bloody. It is ugly. And it's going to be messy. And innocent civilians are going to be hurt going forward. I wish I could tell you something different. I wish that that wasn't going to happen. Uh, but it is... It is going to happen, and uh, that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it uh, dismissible. It it doesn't mean that we aren't going to still express concerns about that and and do everything we can to help the Israelis do everything they can to minimize it. Uh, But but that's that's unfortunately the the nature of conflict. I don't think we've ever heard comments like that from a White House podium ever in American history. At the very end, he says— Obviously, we're going to do what we can to help Israel do what it can uh, to minimize civilian casualties. Uh, But if the preceding 30 seconds is all about how, look, civilian casualties are inevitable, this is war, it's going to happen. And then to say, we're going to continue to express concerns about civilian deaths that have not happened yet, that we are going to be complicit in, really undermines how concerned you actually are. Like you can't, it, you just can't plausibly and authentically express concerns for something that you're about to do. Because if you're really concerned, you could not do it. You could just not. The, uh, the that's interesting because my reaction to that clip was his honesty, <laughs> which I agree mm-hmm. with you is unusual. Yeah, is something that, especially as journalists, but even as people who are critical of the kind of political establishment, we often demand. Right. Um, that's exactly the sort of honesty. I that, just, we just want. I just want different honesty. Right. You, yes. yeah. But I mean, it, like, I, I think that's almost commendably honest uh, because that is. Uh, at its sort of most basic level, our approach to this. And um, I mean, he's he's not wrong about, it. like he, he's reflecting U.S. policy accurately there. And w- what I've been surprised, I guess, to learn is that some of the pretense that was articulated in past bombing campaigns right, right. was more than just pretense. So let's say take uh, May 2021 when uh, Israel's last bombing Gaza, you know, there Actually, there was, I think there was a bombing, the three-day bombing campaign in 2022, but the longer bombing campaign in 2021 uh, was accompanied by claims that civilian casualties were uh, being minimized. Mm-hmm. And the number of civilian casualties then compared to now is a fraction of what we're seeing. Yeah. And so when you remove even the pretense, uh, you had an Israeli, top Israeli defense official said, the, he said, the goal is damage not precision. Mm-hmm. So when you're explicitly on the record saying that you're going, you're going for damage and not precision, that, and you're explicitly minimizing uh, the abil- your ability to reduce civilian casualties, it turns out that in real life, 
many real, many more real lives do get snuffed out. Like there, there is actually a link between the rhetoric. It's not just rhetoric, in other words. Like there, there were some gloves on, we now realize, you know, in hindsight. And we, we can see that by what we see with the gloves off. Hamas is, I mean, makes it virtually impossible for Israel to exist on a day-to-day -day basis with any semblance of peace and security without having, obviously, as you know, we, we fund like a fifth of their military budget on an annual basis, um, although it pales in comparison. Yeah. And to speaking of Hamas, this is something I want to ask the general when he gets here. Yeah. They have, they clearly have invested heavily in missile technology. They, mm -hmm. they, yesterday they spent more missiles, it feels like, than the last couple weeks, mm -hmm. to very little effect other than striking fear. Right. They're, they're not it's, killing yep. people to Iron Dome. And they know that. Mode. A lot of them right. are landing in the airfields. Yet, they have zero anti-aircraft capacity. Mm -hmm. These F-16s are flying over Gaza unmolested. Drones are flying over unmolested. That's a great point. How is that possible? To me, it feels like everyone's incentives line up to have Gazan civilians suffer. Mm -hmm. But I want I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd love to hear the general's uh, take on this. Why, why has Hamas been unable to develop even rudimentary any aircraft. Now, presumably it's a more fixed structure and so it would be easier to take out mm -hmm. immediately. Like whenever you, you know, you see, uh, you know, whenever you see wars break out, the anti-aircraft weaponry lasts like a couple days. So maybe that's what it is, but we'll ask him, see what his take is. Cause obviously I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Well, I think that's a, actually a really important point. And I think actually the point about uh, Hamas is really important too, because there's no, um, Israel has to, if Israel wants to sort of stamp out Hamas, uh, that goal in Gaza, that goal is, I mean, without, because of the way people live in Gaza, without harming civilians to the degree that we're seeing right now when we have the death counter up over 5,700 as of right now, that number is sure to climb because the ground invasion hasn't even started yet. Um, when you see numbers like that, and when you look at the reality, I mean, it's, if the United States is saying that we're going to help Israel minimize the ca casualties, and Israel is saying that we are doing, we're, we're not about precision, we're about maximizing damage, that's a really difficult thing for the White House, especially because as we started this block, we were talking about how the U.S. has a presence fanned out across the Middle East, hundreds of thousands of civilians in Israel, mm -hmm. plenty of civilians, uh, well, actually just people stationed in Lebanon, I forget what the numbers are, we have it right here from the intercept, uh, 89 U.S military personnel uh, deployed to Lebanon, all of these different, I mean, th this ecosystem is very, very fragile. And it is, you know, when Axios is saying, Biden is trying to remind Netanyahu that U.S. interests need to be sort of at front of his mind when he's making these decisions, which is also just a strange position for the Israeli government. Uh, there was a great tablet piece over the summer about how U.S. aid actually harms the Israeli uh, hmm. cause because it puts one hand behind their back essentially because now they have to keep the interests of the U.S. which has 600,000 people in Israel uh, front of mind and presence fanned out throughout the uh, Middle East top of mind. That is, I mean, the, the task of minimizing civilian casualties in that situation um, but also allowing Israel to stamp out an existential threat, uh, good luck. And the, and the scale of the slaughter uh, is turning the world against the Israeli assault, and we, we saw that yesterday uh, with UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. We can place some of his uh, comments that were taken um, in Israel as like deeply offensive. So let's roll uh, Guterres, this is A7. 
the relentless bombardment of Gaza by Israeli forces, the level of civilian casualties, and the wholesale destruction of neighborhoods continue to mount and are deeply alarming. I mourn and honor dozens of UN colleagues working for UNRWA. Sadly, at least 35 and counting killed in the bombardment of Gaza over the last two weeks. I owe to their families my condemnation of these and many other similar killings. The protection of civilians is paramount in any armed conflict. Protecting civilians can never mean using them as human shields. Protection civilians, protecting civilians does not mean ordering more than one million people to evacuate to the south where there is no shelter, no food, no water, no medicine, and no fuel, and then continuing to bomb the South itself. I'm deeply concerned about the clear violations of international humanitarian law that we are witnessing in Gaza. The Israeli foreign ministry reacted extremely harshly uh, to that statement, but the numbers and the stories that we're seeing out of there, you know, tell a brutal picture. If we can put up, uh, what is it, a, A9 here, we're starting to get something, you know, the UN reporting, 42% of Gaza's housing units are damaged or destroyed, and 1.4 million Gazans, well more than half the population, has been, has been displaced. This is, that's a statistic that justifies the entire idea of statistics. That's just a monstrous number. If we can put up a 10 so from my old HuffPost colleague, Phil Lewis, uh, quoting the AP, the World Health Organization says nearly two-thirds of Gaza's health facilities have ceased functioning. Like, and I, I just think that those numbers are, are difficult for us to absorb over here. Yeah, definitely. What that, lo what that looks and feels like, and I think it helps to explain why uh, somebody like Antonio Guterres uh, would be willing to go out on what seems to us like a limb and be so heavily critical, uh, dis despite the politics over at the UN. Yeah, I'm sure it didn't surprise the Israeli delegation too much, but I will say I also think it's hard for us to understand over here uh, the task of, I mean, virtually everyone in the United States after October 7th said, and, and worldwide, said Israel has a right to respond because there cannot be any type of incentive for uh, people, no matter what you actually think of what's happening in Gaza, uh, for for the humanitarian or the, the crime, crimes against humanity uh, that occurred in Israel on October 7th, there, there cannot be an incentive for that. Uh, and so Israel has a, a right to respond. Now, how Israel responds is obviously where there's disagreement, uh, massive disagreement that spans the full spectrum, uh, but also just about everybody on the world stage looks and says uh, Israel's response should minimize civilian casualties. Well, what does that mean? Uh, does that mean you stop at 5,700? I mean, it's just such a gross thing to even have to talk or think about. Um, but there is a, I mean, there is a real challenge at A, being able to respond and B, doing it in, you know, a tiny, tiny area like Gaza that is so densely packed with civilians uh, where you have a group like Hamas that even if it's overstated, does sometimes, even just for space reasons, um, whether it's for space reasons or much worse reasons, uh, which I tend to side with the latter, uh, has military facilities and planning places and puts missiles in civilian areas that just makes it incredibly difficult to have any kind of response that also minimizes civilian deaths. So 
All that is to say, um, this is just, uh, and there was, uh, the Israeli government put out video yesterday of some of the people who are implicated in those crimes against humanity in Israel, um, talking about how mad they are at Hamas leadership for putting the people of Gaza in the situation that they're in. Uh, and I don't take very seriously what they're saying, but I do think there's truth to the fact that Hamas put the people of Gaza in just an ugly and uh, unbelievable situation because from Israel's perspective, there does have to be some kind of response. That does not mean that Israel should not be prosecuting this war. Um, in, in the scope of history, it would be very unusual to supply your enemies uh, with food and water, et cetera, et cetera. But it is morally uh, what Israel should be doing in this situation, and they should be. Uh, they absolutely should be minimizing the the harm and the suffering of all of these civilians, all of the children in Gaza. Um, it's not easy, though. Yeah. And it, it makes our own political problems uh, pale in comparison. Let's take a look at the journey of Tom Emmer anyway yesterday. If we can... Uh, put up B1. We're going to talk about the, the speaker fight, which might resolve itself today. So uh, yesterday morning, uh, and this is Jake Sherman, you know, reporting that Tom Emmer had dropped out of the race for speaker yesterday morning, as we reported here. Uh, Tom Emmer was the speaker designate. Uh, if you took a long nap, by the time you woke up, <laughs> he was done. Uh, you put up, uh, put up uh, B2 here. Uh, he had, you know, what, more than 20, no votes. He didn't crack, he didn't crack 200 uh, he needs. He needed 217 on the floor. It was clear he wasn't going to get there. If you can put up B3, the, the reason it became clear that he wasn't going to get there was that uh, Donald J. Trump, despite a slobbering phone call from uh, Tom Emmer, <laughs> put out just an utterly brutal, I have many wonderful friends wanting to be Speaker of the House, and some are truly great warriors. Rhino Tom Emmer, who I do not know well, <laughs> is not one of them. Hmm. He never respected the power blah, blah, of a Trump endorsement. Uh, anyway, it's delightful truth social from Trump, as always, <laughs> and his operation uh, texted it out <laughs> to everybody in the House, and within moments, Tom Emmer said, all right, forget this, I'm out of here. He's a, he was the whip. Maybe he still is technically the whip, and so he knows how to count votes. He, know, he knows he didn't have it. So they went back to the drawing board, uh, and they emerge with Mike Johnson. <laughs> Sounds fake. Right, I know. <laughs> We're going to take their word for the fact <laughs> that Mike Johnson is a Republican member of Congress. <laughs> is a is a human American man. <laughs> but you don't have to be a Republican member of Congress to be Speaker of the House, so whatever. So they <laughs> That's picked, true. They picked Mike Johnson. So uh, Gates himself, you know, who lit this fire, is saying that Mike Johnson is good enough to douse it. <laughs> And so tell us, so I, it looks like, looks like we might get a Speaker Mike Johnson. So Emily, what, do you, what can you tell us about uh, Speaker Johnson, Speaker-designate Johnson? You know, it, it's, uh, I can confirm that he is a Republican member okay. of Congress and a human American man. Excellent. Good start. Uh, great start for Mike Johnson. He's from Louisiana. Uh, I think he was actually just elected in 2017. He's the vice chair of the House GOP conference. So he's in kind of a leadership position, although sort of a to the extent you can say backbench leadership position, mm -hmm. that's kind of where he is. Uh, he's a very, like, it, it's he's actually as kind of archetypical as he sounds, right? Like a, <laughs> a boring uh, Republican middle-aged white guy uh, to, you know, use the cartoon. Well, Emmer ran an insurance company. Could it be better than that? It, 
Let's see. Could it be it? better than Emmer? Because Emmer actually, and I, I'm going to, like, you, you guys are going to get. Oh, Emmer was so, funny. He was almost an astronaut or something. I, you, you guys are going to get annoyed oh, no, with me today, but I, I really, I'm, I'm going to skip ahead while we're talking about archetypical Republicans. If, if we could go to uh, B6, this is actually how Emmer could maybe outrun Mike Johnson in the sort of cartoonishly Republican middle-aged white guy race. He got stuck on upside down on a Zoom call. Today's gig economy sprung out from the uh, last recession. It offers a job to anyone who wants one. During COVID-19, we must make sure that our nation's sole proprietors and the smallest of small businesses receive timely... Will the gentleman suspend? I'm sorry, Mr. Emmer? Yes. Are you okay? I am. Uh, You're um, upside down, Tom. I, I don't know how to fix that. Would <laughs> can he turn right Mr. side Emmer up? And get it right side up? What's that cat? Yeah, Madam Chair. Cat? Is this a metaphor? I don't know, but he's upside down. <laughs> I didn't, they couldn't even figure out why he was upside down, what it meant that he was upside down, let alone him figuring out how to not be upside down. Um, Mike Johnson, I believe, is slightly younger than Tom Emmer. Uh, I don't know exactly how much younger. I think he is younger. But all that is to say, he's a very, uh, let's say, he's a well-respected kind of social conservative. He's the type of guy who would speak at CPAC, which is sort of unusual. What again. we mean by that, hardcore, uh, what, like, pro-life guy, yep. uh, anti-gay marriage guy, yep. like that whole thing. Like, So you you, you, this, you scratch the Republican conference, you're going to get a lot of those people. You, you know, the, the, they've done a decent job of kind of just having the Supreme Court take the lead on that stuff. But it looks like with the elevation of Mike Johnson, uh, some of that is coming to the fore. And again, this is where Tom Emmer yesterday, I think you were following some of this, I, I think some of it was overstated, but there was a storyline that Tom Emmer's support for uh, same-sex marriage was a sticking it point for some of the hardcore mm -hmm. Republicans that wouldn't Bro, give— There was one guy who told him that or something. Right, Who yeah. told him? It was— I, don't, I, if, I forget who somebody told him that's why I'm not voting for you. Yes, yeah. it became a, like a minor subplot. Yeah, yeah. And when you have one or two people in a— situation like this with the math for Republicans right. that's like an issue, even though it wouldn't be if they had a bigger margin, um, it's a real issue. And so actually I think what's hap what we're seeing happen here is that they have exhausted the time they're comfortable with. They already did not have enough time to do what they mm -hmm. need to do to fund the government right. going into December because they don't want to do omnibuses. They want to do single subject bills. They want to fund the government that way. They can't really agree on any of those funding levels. Uh, they actually have you know, as, as kind of funny as I think it is to see the house that doesn't do anything good, it hasn't done anything good in a while, in chaos. Um, they actually do have things to do by the end of the year if, if we want to avoid a government shutdown, if they want to avoid a government shutdown. Um, there are some serious things that do need funding. And I think they realized that they had exhausted all their options. It actually looked for about 24 hours like Byron Donald's. Um, who got the backing of Freedom Caucus people and were suddenly really excited about Byron Donalds. I like Byron Donalds. Um, they, they got behind him briefly. The conservative movement started aligning behind Byron Donalds. But I would say Mike Johnson is maybe like a more like uh, milk toast kind of boring version mm -hmm. of some of those flamethrowers in that he, he's not like on CNN. Like Byron Donalds always on right. CNN uh, yelling at people and it's re relatively funny. Um, but Mike Johnson isn't going to be that guy. He might 
might decide to be that guy, but Republicans also sort of realize that being Speaker of the House kind of ruins your career. Right. <laughs> like, they don't necessarily want to put their uh, rising stars in the Speaker of the House position because you end up having to compromise right. in ways that are going to really piss off the base and you know denigrate your fundraising ability, undercut your fundraising ability, I should say. So he's he's sort of a run-of-the-mill hardcore Republican, um, which is- uh, Chair of the Republican Study Group, which is the kind of big block of conservative Republicans. Yeah. And, and, he, and Speaker, I think, is cool to have on your Wikipedia, especially if your name is Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson. Because it's going to be in parentheses, the Speaker. The Speaker. Like, how many, you get a portrait, right? got to be hundreds of Mike Johnsons on yeah. Wikipedia. So it's hard to hard to distinguish yourself just as a member of Congress. Yes. So if you're a Speaker, that helps. Uh, it got so bad, if we put up before, uh, Kevin McCarthy thought he briefly had a path back in. He was floating an idea where he would be a Speaker and Jim Jordan would be assistant speaker, which is funny because like there's already, that title already exists, it's called majority leader. Although they did actually create an assistant speakership for Jim Clyburn in the mm -hmm. house back mm -hmm. in I think 2019. No, uh, oh, no, it would have been when they got bumped out of the majority uh, because you, you get fewer leadership posts in, in the minority than you do in the majority. 2015. Yeah, and so 15. nobody wanted to nobody wanted to bump uh, Clyburn out, so they kind of made a new position that allowed him to stay in. But that would be weird. Like, does just Jordan go to every White House meeting when the speaker's called over? Yeah, and, like would have been funny. Uh, <laughs> but looks like you know Mike Johnson might have it. Yeah. You think? Yeah. So that's the thing. Um, they, it, it feels like what's happened is they've they think they've exhausted the clock. They've run out the clock to the point where. Uh, they are kind of itching to get back to business to do what they want to do. And they are also realizing the public is looking at them and, and laughing. I think there was a brief moment where, um, you know, nobody on a regular basis, like your average American doesn't know or really care that much who's the Speaker of the House. And I don't think they necessarily should. Uh, but at a certain point, when you're going through what he's like the fourth guy to get votes in the conference, like it's starting least, to just yeah. look completely ridiculous that they have the, they're getting the votes in the conference, private votes, and then when you go to the floor, uh, they can't hit the 217 mark. Like it, it's just, it's and I think, stupid. I think all the talk of Democrats being willing to help and yes. some Republicans beginning to entertain that prospect took away some of the leverage of the, the crazy eights, as uh, McCarthy calls it, the Gates crew. Yep. So it's like, okay, because if we keep holding the line here, we can keep holding the line, but we're not going to get Mike Johnson. You know, we're going to get whatever, you know, whoever Gottheimer wants to pluck out of yes. like the no labels problem solvers thing. Right. They realized it was giving ammunition to the centrists and the more ammunition they give the centrists in the court of public opinion, um, it was more like more and more likely that there was going to be a deal struck with Democrats that was really bad for them, which was always a possibility. And, you know, Gates knew that. Um, yeah. And if Gates like this is actually kind of a win for Gates because he's you know, when he did this, the likelihood that they were going to get someone much worse than Kevin McCarthy from a Freedom Caucus perspective was really high because who could step into that role? Steve Scalise, Tom Emmer, those were the big names. Like Emmer was one mm -hmm. of the biggest names because people in the Freedom Caucus thought that he had brokered some compromises that were good for them and some deals that were good for them kind of behind the scenes over the course of this last Congress. Uh, that said, he still is very business friendly, very establishment friendly in a way that wouldn't always go well for them. And so when Gates got rid of McCarthy, McCarthy was one of the few people, as we've talked about many times, that was willing and had good relationships with the Freedom mm -hmm. Caucus and was willing to listen to them. Mike Johnson is someone 
who uh, the Freedom Caucus should be pretty happy with as Speaker of the House. I think it's unusual that you have somebody that is in such on such good terms with the conservative movement um, that's in a position of Republican leadership. So that's kind of a win for Matt Gates, even though, you know, I, you know, do I care that much that he threw Congress into chaos for the last couple of weeks? Honestly, not really. Nobody, nobody <laughs> really does. I mean, so all, all of this is still at the stage of maneuvering because it hasn't resulted in policy yet. But would you say that this power play ended up being ultimately to the power benefit of the right in the House mm. or not so much? What's what, Or is it too early to tell? I think it'll depend on how the Johnson speakership goes. And I am assuming, I think it might take them a couple of votes today. I'm assuming that they have you know, run to the end of their line here. I don't know that for sure. It could still go either way. Right. Um, they don't really know. Uh, but I do think this is the most likely um, that they will have a speaker by the end of the day of any of the previous people who have made it out of conference. So again, could take a couple votes today. They don't know at this point, and that's very clear. Uh, so, but I, I would I would say it's more likely than it has been right. in the other situations that they leave today with a speaker of the house. All right, let's move on to one of the other circuses down in Georgia. Another one of President Donald Trump's alleged co-conspirators in the RICO case down in Georgia, where Trump is accused of trying to go out and find me 11,000 votes and, and flip the election and we'll create some fake electors. Uh, his attorney, Jenna Ellis, uh, pleaded guilty in rather dramatic fashion to a, a, a much lesser charge, which suggests that she's ready to cooperate uh, at a trial. Uh, let's uh, play Jenna Ellis here, uh, speaking to the judge. Thank you, Your Honor, for the opportunity to address the court. As an attorney who is also a Christian, I take my responsibilities as a lawyer very seriously, and I endeavor to be a person of sound moral and ethical character in all of my dealings. In the wake of the 2020 presidential election, I believed that challenging the results on behalf of President Trump should be pursued in a just and legal way. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability. I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information, especially since my role involved speaking to the media and to legislators in various states. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. In the frenetic pace of attempting to raise challenges to the election in several states, including Georgia, I failed to do my due diligence. I believe in and I value election integrity. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. If we can and put up the next element, uh, she's basically charged uh, with aiding and abetting false statements and writings conditions of the plea agreement, according to NBC News, include the requirements she served five years of probation. I hope that's unsupervised for her sake. I've been on supervised probation. It sucks. Uh, pay $5,000 of uh, restitution to the Georgia Secretary of State and testify at hearings or trials in the case. I'm trying to move past that you were on <laughs> supervised yes. probation. It sucked. I don't recommend it. Yeah. Noted. They, they, they treat you like total garbage. You got yeah, take drug tests. It costs you money for the privilege. No, it's, it's unpleasant. That sounds yeah. unpleasant. Uh, 
Sometimes I just learned so much of you at unexpected times. Uh, but, you know, Jenna Ellis, uh, so to Ryan's point, um, also required to complete 100 hours of community service and write an apology letter to the citizens of Georgia. She also agreed to provide any requested documents or evidence, not post about the case on social media, and not have any communication with any witnesses or the media until the case has been closed. Now, we do have another element that sort of looks back on, uh, it, it sort of puts together, this is from, I think, the Republican accountability project um, or accountable GOP, something like that. It's their, their Twitter handle. They, they spliced together videos of Jenna Ellis from 2020 uh, with Jenna Ellis just yesterday. Let's take a look at that. Strike force team that is working on behalf of the president and the campaign to make sure that our constitution is protected. We are a nation of rules. All of your fake news headlines are dancing around the merits of this case and are trying to delegitimize what we are doing here. Let me be very clear that our objective is to make sure to preserve and protect election integrity. What is the point of all this? <laughs> well, the point of this, of course, is to get to fair and accurate results because the election was stolen and President Trump won by a landslide. We know already that the election results in at least five of the swing states were irredeemably compromised. So we already have sufficient evidence for these states to decertify their electoral uh, results. Your question is fundamentally flawed when you're asking where is the evidence. You clearly don't understand the legal process. What we have asked for in the court is to not have the certification of false results. Right, I think it's actually easy to watch the clip of her yesterday and have sympathy, and I'm not saying that's entirely unwarranted. When I see that, I think, good for Jenna Ellis. I actually wish a lot of people that have sort of come into Trump's orbit and been poisoned or just compromised in the frenzy of uh, Republican politics in the last few years would come out and kind of explain how they got sucked into all of this and how seemingly reasonable people, I mean, a, a lot of folks who lived in New York City under Rudy Giuliani do not recognize. I mean, whatever right. people originally thought about him, they don't recognize the Rudy Giuliani that's become a close Trump ally um, from the Rudy Giuliani as when he was mayor of New York City. Uh, and wonder, you know, how is it that people who are seemingly intelligent, reasonable, normal, successful people um, come out and say things like in that last clip, one that stuck out to me was Jenna Ellis saying President Trump won in a landslide. Uh, that I think it is almost impossible to understate, to, to emphasize how seriously it changed the country in 2020 and will have an effect on the country for years and years to come because the trust deficit there, people like Jenna Ellis uh, were being told, and she played a huge role in this because she was on TV saying Donald Trump won in a landslide. And people around the country look at that and say, this is an attorney for the president of the United States who has information that must be pretty good because she's an attorney for the president mm -hmm. of the United States that is telling her that he won in a landslide. That's exactly how you get people sacking the Capitol because they think that the election yeah. is being stolen, a landslide election is being stolen out from under their noses. And honestly, when they're being told that by an attorney for the president who is so confident she's saying it on television, um, th that responsibility, I mean, she, she should be crying when she reflects on it because it is so tragic the way that uh, people were misled by, and, and she's passing the buck to other attorneys, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, again, I don't know what the truth is to that, but she's she obviously feels badly for doing it, I guess. I mean, maybe those are crocodile tears, but um, man. You seem, you seem pretty real. 
Pat- yeah. And maybe she was getting bad information from. Like, I don't doubt that someone was getting bad information from Sidney Powell right. or Rudy Giuliani in 2020. But even she is saying that she failed to do her due diligence, and that is for damn sure. Right, and some of it is a little bit of hubris and youth in the sense that I think it's true that Trump had run through so many attorneys. 100%. That he's, he's got an inexperienced young woman uh, who's, who's kind of easy to bully and push around by some of the more senior yes. attorneys. But, and maybe it's youth and hubris that doesn't allow her to ask the question of, I have so little experience. Yeah. What on earth am I doing? in this incredibly pivotal role, advising a president of the United States who's trying to overturn an election. Right. Like, it's not my skills, background, genius that got me here. Nobody else would do this. And then to ask yourself, well, why will no, Why would nobody else do this? Mm-hmm. A, because he doesn't pay them. <laughs> B, because they, they looked at it and they're like, you, the facts are not on your side here. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most wonderful things that the United States kind of has given to the world is the peaceful transfer of power. We've, we've, we've delivered a lot of pain to the world, but that, the transfer of power over thousands of years has been a place where so many people have died just, mm-hmm. just for the, the pursuit of vanity and power by different uh, you know, factions. Mm-hmm. And to have developed for hundreds of years a way to transfer that power from one side to another, from one faction to another, without people dying is, is, an, is an, an innovation that we just can't kind of allow to just slide away because right. one guy didn't like the results of the uh, of the election that leads to that transfer of power. And so you try to undermine that, you come for the king and you miss, you're gonna get a $5,000 fine to the Georgia Secretary of State. And what she's doing there is not quibbling with the constitutionality of Pennsylvania's mail-in voting laws, right? She's saying mm-hmm. Donald Trump won, won in a landslide yeah. and Sidney Powell was out talking about Dominion voting machines. And by the way, while all of this is happening, Mark Zuckerberg is steering millions of dollars into a partisan electioneering project that people behind it actually told Time Magazine was like, they essentially, Molly Ball wrote a piece basically Mm -hmm. being like, this was a conspiracy, but it was a good one uh, to quote, rig the election. So while you're talking about Dominion voting machines and Donald Trump winning in a landslide, there are actually serious questions about money and politics and money and elections being raised and nobody is talking about them anymore because Jenna Ellis was saying Donald Trump won in a landslide. Just really quickly before we get to Mark Meadows, I'll read Jonathan Turley. He said, Ellis uh, is the type of plea that tends to concentrate the mind. And and Turley has been generally favorable to Trump. He's a George Washington University law professor, hardly like a creature of the conservative movement, uh, but somebody who has kind of come to Trump's mm-hmm. defense in some of these cases and talking about how their lawfare. Powell pleaded to relatively minor charges. So she pleaded, as people remember last week, involving unauthorized access to voting machines in areas. Those charges tend to be easy to prove. It is not clear if she would tie Trump to a conspiracy or racketeering. Ellis pleaded guilty to false statements that could conceivably implicate the president if she claims that he was aware of the falsity and facilitated the crime. Moreover, Ellis recently broke with Trump. She called him a malignant narcissist who cannot admit mistakes and said she would never vote for him again. Meanwhile, we can put element 4C4 up on the screen. Just yesterday, ABC News reported that Donald Trump's ex-chief of staff, as all of this was going down, Mark Meadows, was granted immunity and told the special counsel that he warned Donald Trump about 2020 election claims. Now, this report says Meadows, quote, repeatedly 
repeatedly told Trump in the weeks after the 2020 election that allegations of significant voting fraud were baseless and that Trump had been, quote, dishonest with his quick claim of victory right after the polls closed. So to Turley's point about Ellis potentially implicating Donald Trump in this conspiracy that Fannie Willis has charged him with, Fannie Willis has charged him with, uh, that is now a position Mark Meadows reportedly is in. Uh, I think this story has been questioned by people close to Meadows. I think they're saying that mm. it's not necessarily true, uh, but hmm. we'll see. He's going to testify to it anyway. Well, that, that that's the thing. What, um, what are people saying is true? Wh- how do you mean? So you, you said that people close to Trump don't think Meadows' claim is true? Uh, I think it's people close to Meadows have said oh, okay. this story is not necessarily accurate. And, oh, oh, and this. that could mean different things. Oh, ABC interesting. Report. I see, I see, I see. Yeah, and again, the I remember when we were going through the RICO indictment out of Georgia, There, one of the unfortunate things about it is that a lot of the conspiracy charges against people like Jenna Ellis it was obviously lawfare and was obviously ridiculous, but then there were kernels in that mm-hmm. lawsuit there were just like, it was like two or three of them where Willis shows that people like Ellis, uh, I don't remember if she was specifically one of them, but people in Trump's legal circle and Trump himself, there were a couple of instances where they were obviously spreading things they knew that were not true. Right. And if that had just been like the tight indictment instead of like conspiracy because they booked a conference room and whatever else, um, man, that would be really devastating. But maybe it's actually, maybe that's how they, maybe they did that intentionally to get people like Ellis to flip by just flooding the zone with different charges um, and Meadows too. Yeah. All right, so m- moving over to the Senate side, uh, progressive senators and House members have been under a lot of pressure uh, from supporters of Palestinian rights lately to back a ceasefire uh, in Gaza. If we can put up uh, this first ele- element here, it began with nearly 300 Bernie Sanders alumni calling on the senator to back a ceasefire in Gaza. It is now well over 330 uh, former staff members uh, for Bernie Sanders' uh, congressional offices and his his presidential campaign. So in, in, in the letter sent Tuesday, which is provided to The Intercept, former staffers asked Sanders to introduce a Senate-side companion to the ceasefire now resolution in the House to support an end to U.S. funding, quote, for war crimes against the Palestinian people, the expansion of settlements, and the occupation of Palestinian lands, unquote, and to support an end to the blockade of of Gaza. The the letter writes, President Biden clearly values your counsel, as is shown by the ways you've managed to shape the outcomes of this presidency. The staffers wrote, we urge you to make it clear what is at stake in this crisis politically, morally, and strategically. Uh, They also released a video. uh, It's up on my Twitter feed. I don't know if we, I don't think we have the video here. Is that right? Uh, That uh, has a bunch of the staffers directing comments uh, directly to uh, Bernie Sanders, who has called for kind of the bombs to stop on all sides, which a lot of people are like, that's close enough to a ceasefire. And and it does, that that is saying stop firing stop and cease, same thing. What they're saying is introduce a Senate resolution so that there's something to organize around. The House has a resolution that people can, you know, the members of the House can sign on to. The Senate does not have one. Saying Bernie Sanders could be the one to put that in. On the other side of the uh, progressive uh, wing of the, in the Senate, you've got John Fetterman, uh, who has been one of the kind of most outspoken, unconditional supporters of Israel's, uh, war, uh, Israel's war on Gaza, uh, since it, since it began, uh, here he is on uh, uh, at a Pod Save America event recently. You know, it's to remember that Hamas doesn't want peace. He doesn't want to be negotiated with. Or I mean, and you know, they massacred you know you know innocent 
children, women, and now they have over 200 hostages with them right now as well too. So um, I, I really believe that I'm always going to decide to stand on the side of Israel, you know, in this place. So one of the things that Fetterman's critics have, have pointed out is that it's so, and we can go back to the the primary that he had that he had last cycle. Uh, he worked very closely with uh, DMFI, Democratic Majority for Israel, on his Israel position paper. Like he reached out to them. Like the, uh, the Jewish Insider has re reported this. I've I've done some reporting on this. Reached out to them, said here here's you know we'd like to hear from you. They so they had a meeting. Then they constructed an Israel Palestine you know policy platform. Sent it back to DMFI. DMFI said this is pretty good. And they've said this all in the regular. They said, this is pretty good. Here are the changes we'd like to see. Kicked it back to the Fetterman campaign. He's like, we're good to go. And the, the politics underlying all that were that Connor Lamb, mm -hmm. who's a conservative Democrat, also running for Senate, had been very publicly pleading for super PAC support. Uh, his, his, uh, his brother was out there like explicitly saying, like, we can beat Fetterman, but we don't have the money. We need a super PAC to come in. Here are the messages that you could run. We can win. And uh, APAC and DMFI looked at the, 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 uh, the Fetterman interaction regarding Israel-Palestine paper and said, we're not going to back Connor Lamb. We're not backing Fetterman, but we're not going to back Connor Lamb. So that's the previous context. The future context is that Pennsylvania is a swing state. And so if uh, APAC decided that it wanted to get in, uh, in in a general election, you know, they could certainly do that. And so... Uh, According to people close to him, this has never been an issue. This is not one that's like coming from the heart. Like for a lot of people, that's interesting because he's he's a creature of the left, right? But for a lot of people, inclu including uh, Summer Lee, AOC, yeah. others, they've said publicly, growing up, Israel Palestine was not an issue that we talked about. Like in a lot of working class communities, right? You don't it, think about it. It just doesn't it just doesn't come up. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you don't. You know, it, it's just. Well, foreign policy in general, foreign unless, it's, in general, unless just, there's a, unless right. your community is being shipped up. to war, which is yeah. very true in the 2000s. But yeah, and, it, it's, and a little bit of it comes through in that video. It, it sounded like for a second he was he was referring to Hamas as the, like a person, like a leader yeah. of an organization, rather he. than the organization itself. He said and, he, and then he said they. Right, and so the people, uh, but so the politics of this are: if I get on the wrong side of it, I could face you know millions and millions of dollars. Now. Uh, uh, lots of his former staff, and The Intercept reported this too, if we can put up this next element, have, have uh, sent a letter to Fetterman as well, urging him to support um, uh, 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 an Israel-Hamas uh, ceasefire. This is kind of part of this very unusual bubbling up of dissent from, from kind of staff members and young people around, around the country. Uh, you also had, if we can put up this, this next element, um, the political director for Ro Khanna, uh, he started on a Monday, and it was really a how it started, how it's going. Mm. It's like professional news. I'm joining Ro Khanna's office. Two weeks later, puts up. Um, he tried to get uh, Representative Ro Khanna to sponsor Rashida Tlaib's ceasefire now resolution. He refused. Po personal note: I resigned from my job on Monday because of a refusal to call for a ceasefire. I'll be doing everything in my power to stand against war. Uh, Rokana gave me a statement saying, you know, he, that he's still they're still tight. He's a, he's a passionate support, a passionate voice for human rights for Palestine. I will continue to call for protecting civilian life, humanitarian aid. Kana said, and living up to the standards of the Geneva Convention, but would not be signing on to uh, to leave. So this is Adam Raymer uh, resigning within within two weeks of starting over at the uh, over in Kana's office. So a, a, a real kind of 
would you call it grassroots? I don't know, hmm. uh, because it's it's a little higher level than grassroots. Yeah. You've seen some of it over in the State Department. There's so much kind of hostility to the State Department policy. Blinken had to have a listening session with dozens of uh, members. Uh, Josh Paul, a veteran employee, as we have up here, uh, resigned in protest, uh, putting up a, a letter explaining that uh, he felt like the uh, unconditional support for Israel was trending in such a dangerous direction that he couldn't stand by it. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this kind of almost generational divide mm. continues to influence American policy. So it, this is one of the reasons this issue is, I think, politically, um, it, t one of the toughest and, and most interesting issues from a political perspective is that elite opinion on Israel and Palestine is in and of itself divided, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to you know elite opinion on Medicare for all or elite opinion on um, you know same-sex marriage. Like there's a legitimate divide among elites when it comes to Israel and Palestine, and so you see some people in positions of power saying uh, you know the media is pro-Israel. We have seen. Uh, really bad media coverage from people who are pro-Israel, and we have seen really bad media coverage from people who are pro-Palestine. Pro uh, we have seen really bad arguments from people who are pro-Israel, and we've seen really bad arguments from powerful people who are pro-Palestine. And what you just said about the generational divide is really interesting, um, because I wonder if that actually is where the split in elite opinion comes in. Because both sides are right that the media is in some ways uh, pro-Israel and the media is in some ways pro-Palestine because there are people uh, mm -hmm. on both sides of that divide in elite circles, which is super unusual for any of these issues. Like you, you just don't see that happening. Like there are no elites that, for instance, support Donald Trump. Like it's so rare. I mean, there are a couple billionaires um, and people in like conservative media that right. are supportive of Donald Trump. But it's we're, we're talking. It's like you know nine to one ratio. Um, but it's it's more split, and it's not wrong to say that there are positions in power that are uh, disproportionately pro-Israel. Uh, but it's also not wrong to say there are people in positions of power, for instance, the State Department, um, all the way up the chain in Rokana's office, uh, lots of, to, to the point where there's enough staffers to put these letters together mm -hmm. and to really challenge Bernie Sanders. Uh, the Biden administration itself uh, is kind of split. You had Karine Jean-Pierre pivoting. Uh, this was a super interesting clip from Tuesday. Uh, I'm sorry, from Monday, when she pivoted, she was asked about anti-Semitism and immediately pivoted to xenophobia um, against Muslims. Mm -hmm. And then the White House tried to backtrack that. Uh, I think that reflects the internal kind of ideological tug of war that is in all elite circles, uh, not so much on the right, but it's especially acute on the left, that you have people who are very vehemently supportive of Israel and people who are vehemently supportive of Palestine. Uh, and that is, I, I just find that to be very unusual on almost any other issue. And I think also if when you get these kind of less elite uh, communications operations, like with Kirby and uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, you end up accidentally getting more honest stuff out of them. Mm, interesting. Because a good, a good communicator would not have made that mistake that KGP made. A yes. good communicator would not have made the mistakes that, that Kirby has been making lately. In being honest. In, in, in just, yeah, a little bit too much honesty coming through. Yeah. And then you'll be like, oh, whoa. Your job is not to be honest. <laughs> yes, your, your, your job is propaganda. Our like, job is to be as honest right. as possible. Your job. You're supposed to be the propagandist. Yes. You're supposed to make the sift through this to get to the truth, not right. just kind of accidentally drop it out here. Yeah, exactly.
Another phenomenon developing on the left has been kind of cancel culture coming home mm. to roost on a lot of the people who have been uh, pushing for support uh, for Palestinian uh, rights over the past several weeks. The biggest, I, 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 not the biggest, but I think the moment that got the most attention was from a man named Michael Eisen, if we can put this uh, first one up. He, po he posted, I've been informed that I'm being replaced as the editor-in-chief of eLife for, retwe for retweeting a, an Onion piece that calls out indifference to the lives of Palestinian civilians. Uh, what is eLife? It does not matter. <laughs> no, nobody knows. Know. Uh, it's a thing. It's apparently a, bi a big enough thing that has a lot of other employees because you had other, you know, since then you have had, I, I'm looking at it now, 17.6 million views on this tweet, even if you believe, even if you think, uh, Elon Musk is inflating that by 10x. It's still been, you know, passed around rapidly, rapidly and significantly. And you've had uh, a number of other eLife uh, managers and employees coming out and saying, "I'm stepping down," or "I I, I reject this this uh, notion that our editor in chief should be fired for posting uh, an onion clip." But it's it's not just that. You're seeing it all over the place. Um, a a writer was. Uh, a sports writer was fired for, um, actually, you know, this one, mm, I don't know about that one. Uh, so, <laughs> this for, a guy. so, yeah, this is, this is a guy who, he said, this post sucks, solidarity with Palestine, always. Um, because but, the, but it was 76ers It was on top tweeted. of a 76ers um, thing, just saying that, uh, you know, mourning the hundreds of innocent lives lost. There, there, are, there are a lot of people who kind of crossed lines of, of decency and ended up losing jobs over that. And I think that's different. Yes. Then yes. Uh, expressing a political opinion and losing your job over it because everyone says you you don't have a right to a job and okay you don't you don't have a right to a job but also we have a right to defend you for losing your job over a political statement but if you cross lines of decency um, then that's a slightly different situation but a lot of these are, are not that case um, you had the 92nd Street Y canceled a Viet Thung win uh, event. Uh, because he signed an open letter supporting uh, Palestine, that was, but it was, it was, there was nothing of, uh, offensive in that. Uh, Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times has a great column uh, that picks up on uh, on on wins, uh, kind of cancellation. Literally, his event uh, was canceled. Uh, she writes about how uh, Nathan Thrall had a, a bunch of uh, events canceled. He wrote he had he had written a great book called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, uh, which is about a kind of father who's searching for a uh, a lost Palestinian boy in the in the West Bank, and uses that narrative to to write about daily life for Palestinians in the West Bank. A bunch of organizations said, "We cannot do anything that humanizes Palestinians in this moment." Uh, so canceled a bunch of canceled a bunch of those events. Uh, you you had somebody who was chanting "Free Palestine." Yeah, this um, is the next element this one here yeah. on, on the London Tube, uh, who was then like suspended from work. Uh, the, you had a a uh, Canadian member of, I don't know if it's Parliament. I don't, I don't know all of the <laughs> Canada's like legal system, but uh, you know, she said she stood with Palestine and was censured and kicked out of her left-wing party. The NDP kicked her out of the out of the party. Uh, the Knesset. I think we have this next one here. Yeah. Knesset suspended a lawmaker. This is Israeli's Knesset for uh, Ofer Kasif for criticizing Israel's war on Gaza in a. In a, in a way that everybody, I think, would acknowledge is within bounds. Well, obviously not everybody, because the Knesset right. um, kind of running him out of here. And so uh, one of the things that Michelle Goldberg touched on in her piece 
was that for years, people like her on the left have been saying, be careful with this uh, cancel culture. Yeah. Because it's going to be used against you. Yes. And she would, and she, and she, and other people like her would say, just in principle, you should not. You know, you should be supportive of free speech. It mm-hmm. shouldn't need to be utilitarian and pragmatic for you. Yeah. But if it needs to be, guess what? The the shoe will be on the other foot. And also, if you're on the left, the shoe is always on the other foot. Like you're you're always going to get kicked with this. And so you depending should, whether you're really on the left. <laughs> right. Exactly. So uh, now. Uh, there are people saying, where, where, is the, where are the people on the left to stand up for free expression? Yeah. Well, and, and it turns out there aren't, uh, that, that has been so par- uh, polarized and an element of the right that, it's, that there's now nobody to stand for them. And I think they've muddied the waters in a really unfortunate way, too, because uh, let's put this next element up on the screen. This is five. Um, I, I saw this, and this is a uh, reporter for the Daily Signal. Governor DeSantis just ordered the University of Florida and the University of South Florida do, to deactivate their, quote, Students for Justice in Palestine groups for violating Florida's laws against anti-Semitism and also for— um, so, and you can see in this letter here, based on the National SJP's support of terrorism and consulta- consultation with Governor DeSantis, the student chapter must be deactivated. So they're making this argument that SJP had offered material support to a foreign enemy, essential, essentially because they had claimed that Operation Al-Aqsa flood um, was, you know, they, they needed to mobilize in support of the, right. quote, operation because they had used that word that this was material support to, like, a terrorist organization, essentially, and thereby, under Florida law, they needed to be unrecognized. And we, we talked a lot about the Stop Woke Act uh, when Ron DeSantis came out with it. And there was some really overly broad language in it that I really didn't like, uh, especially as a conservative who kind of saw the free speech problem for what it was and over the last decade, uh, I wasn't super happy with everything in that. And so I, I saw that tweet and I was like, what the, like, what is going on? Like, this sounds ridiculous. Um, and I still think either the justification that they came up with was ridiculous precisely because of a point that you just mm-hmm. made. I want to actually read from the SJP toolkit that DeSantis is referencing because I took a look at it mm-hmm. and I was like, my God. They wrote, today we witness a historic win for the Palestinian resistance across land, air, and sea. Our people have broken down the artificial barriers of the Zionist entity, taking with it the facade of an impenetrable settler colony and reminding each of us that total return and liberation of Palestine is near. Um, They say national liberation is near. Glory to our resistance, to our martyrs, and to our steadfast people. They also say when people are occupied, resistance is justified. Normalize the resistance. Uh, These events are the natural and justified response to decades of oppression and dehumanization. Um, And that is in reference to, it says, the Palestinian people have the right to return to their homeland and free themselves from the complete land, air, and sea siege they've been subjected to. Um, Then here's another one. Rather, liberating colonized land is a real process that requires confrontation by any means necessary. In essence, decolonization is a call to action, a commitment to the restoration of indigenous sovereignty. It calls upon us to engage in meaningful acts that go beyond symbolism and rhetoric. Resistance comes in all forms, armed struggle, general strikes, and popular demonstration. All of it is legitimate and all of it is necessary. And of course, this is in reference to an attack that was targeting civilians. And it's parroting, by the way, some of the language from Israel when they say, by any means necessary. That's 
actually what a lot of people on the mm -hmm. left are criticizing from right. Israel right now by any means necessary. Okay, so that means shutting down the water, the electricity um, to Gaza. That means bombing civilian spaces, uh, hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. And that's exactly what people who support Palestine right now are objecting to from Israel. And this template or this, this toolkit includes templates with paragliders in them. And we all know what that means. Uh, that means supporting the paragliders who just mauled civilians uh, right. down in Israel. And so it's completely reasonable uh, that the University of Florida would have in its code of conduct something that prevents that because there, there's political disagreements and then there's decency disagreements. And where our problem comes in is when people on the right and some people on the left inflate the definitions of terms like anti-Semitism to implicate reasonable political disagreements and say that because Ilhan Omar said something in favor of Palestine, she is anti-Semitic. I don't know whether Ilhan Omar is anti-Semitic, but I do know that supporting Palestine is not necessarily definitionally anti-Semitic. The left, that's, that's one of the ways we see language creep on the right. I think we see it, have seen it, as Michelle Goldberg points out, much more from the last, left in the last 10 years. Terms like bigotry, terms like white supremacy have been inflated uh, to include reasonable disagreements. But this is the problem with that. This is precisely the problem with that, is it makes it impossible, it becomes a free speech conflict when you have people that are justifying uh, the slaughter of civilians and mobilizing to support it, not just making abstract esoteric arguments in favor of it, but doing activism to support that. Uh, it becomes a free speech conflict instead of, this is just a normal student code of conflict conflict. Yeah, well, I think, you, I think we have to distinguish between kind of private companies and, and public. public institutions sure. here. And so, and when I say that uh, there's a di distinction between kind of polit you know, political disagreements and, and decency on the private sector side, what I mean by that is, is if, because you really, just like somebody doesn't have a right to a job, um, somebody doesn't have a right to other people defending them if they get fired. The way you earn that right uh, is you stay within bounds of decency. Mm -hmm. But if you're but if you if 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 you're within those bounds of decency, but your politics are off, people don't like what your politics yes. say, then I think everybody should defend your right to not be fired, even from Agree. even from the private even from the private sector. Because yeah. that's what you know, McCarthyism ultimately, you know, uh, hit a lot of people in the private sector. But I think the public sector protections have to be even much more expansive than that. And I think, you know, as deplorable as what Jewish Voices for Peace chapter is, is saying here, uh, I think it still falls all within the realm of speech. Reasonable boundaries. It, well, and even if you don't think it's decent, it doesn't matter if it's decent or not, it's still speech. And so this Daily Signal claim that they violated laws against anti-Semitism is nonsense because there are no laws against anti-Semitism. Oh, the Anti Ron DeSantis claim. Yeah. Uh, well, the Daily Signal is supportive of it. Yeah, the, right. That the tweet from the Daily Signal there. Uh, there aren't laws against anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism should be condemned. It's deplorable, but it's not illegal. Nor should it be. Speech. We have First Amendment protections. Yes. Um, in this in this country, what they're leaning on, as you said, is the the, the word material. Right. Material support for a terrorist organization, Hamas, a terrorist organization. Material has always been understood to mean material, like money or other like tangible material support. Speech support 
has never been that. Even if you said on September 11, 2001, that you were happy that, that Al-Qaeda had done what it did, mm-hmm. like that would be protected speech. Right. And it's important to protect the most deplorable speech because that's, that's, oh, that, that's where they restrict it. Right. The things that you disagree with the most are the things you have to defend the right to, to make. Now, people have zeroed in on, we're gonna have a mass mobilization. That's, just, that's a rally. They're, they're just having a rally. They're, I mean, gonna, they're gonna have 20 people chanting somewhere. The SJP yeah. people were giving templates for like social media and- Yeah, that's, that's all speech. It's all, to me, that's all speech. It's all just standard organizing. It's rallies, it's speeches, it's posting on social media. And, and we don't wanna get to a place where you're criminalizing posting on social media or or holding rallies. No, I mean, I agree with that. I think there's a much better rationale uh, than material support for a terrorist organization that they could have found, which would have been like in the student code of conduct about being like respectful. Um, and you know, what, what those, are, the, those could, I, I got charged with one of those in the, college. They um, are dangerous and, and they have, dangerous too, yeah. they've been used against conservatives at private and public ACLU schools. ACLU defended me and they dropped it. See, yeah. that's, and so yes, although it, that's the, what I'm saying though exactly yeah. is that the left has muddied the waters over the last 10 years to the point where those are rendered completely meaningless. Even when yeah. you have people saying what this toolkit said, it is rendered completely meaningless. Like if there's that like 0.001% of cases that are brought have legitimacy. And maybe this is one of those cases. And like, we can't even have that conversation because it all just gets muddied into a speech conversation instead of just like, like at some point we have to be able, nobody in this country for the most part, believes that there should be zero um, limits on speech. Like what, the material support for a terrorist group is a great example. Like we do have limits on some of this stuff. Uh, and as I'm, I feel like I'm as close to the boundary as you can possibly get on that. Like I, free speech absolutist to the point that it's possible. Um, and so I don't really wanna see anybody criminalized or punished for speech. And that's why I think it's stupid to do this. At the same time, I do think it's unfortunate the waters have been muddied. Uh, to the point where you can say stuff like this and we have to have this conversation about like cancellation. It's not cancel culture. If you, if it, the, all the other examples I agree with you are cancel culture. This one is not. I, I think a lot of this stuff, by the way, I think is is not, okay, anyway, we got to wrap and move on to the, <laughs> we can keep uh, going. To the guests. We got the, we got the guests in here. We're going to talk about uh, the movement to, to bring, uh, you know, psychedelics out of the, out of the shadows. Uh, stick around for that. All right, joining us now is Jesse Gold, former Army Ranger and uh, founder of the Heroic Hearts uh, Project. Going to talk about the kind of growing kind of movement to bring psychedelics kind of out of the shadows um, and it, into the, into public. We're also joined by General Martin Steele, who is with uh, Reason for Hope. Uh, General Steele, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Honored to be with you. You got it. And, and Jesse, this is our first time having one guest live and one guest remote. Uh, so we, we appreciate you guys uh, doing this. You're here at a either fortuitous or unfortuitous time because your issue is in the news. Yesterday we covered uh, this uh, Alaska Air bizarre situation where it looked like a pilot might have been trying to do some type of crash by suicide. Turns out the pilot has said, uh, that it was his first time ever taking psilocybin mushrooms and thought he was dreaming and tried to pull, tried to basically shut the plane down to wake up. 
And speaking of waking up, I, I, as soon as I heard that, I was like, this sounds like a nightmare uh, for Jesse. Uh, so when, when you saw this news report, um, what did it make you think about the way that this issue has uh, kind of been playing politically around the country? Because I want to get into the, uh, it's, it's so alive so in so many states around the country. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. And uh, I'm glad we can test your guys' systems yeah. to see how it rolls. Um, and Good so, so honored to be yeah. uh, joined with by the general, uh, who's yeah. also doing some amazing stuff. For me, it's more fortuitous because these conversations are coming mm-hmm. in terms of America's perception of psychedelics and what we immediately jump to. And for me, this news story, there's a lot more to unfold. If you read it, it just kind of lumps into different pieces. And it's that media association that media does of this thing bad happened, Mm -hmm. psychedelics, uh uh-oh, this guy went crazy, right? It's very Reefer Madness-esque. You could take this article 100 years ago, and they could say the same thing with cannabis, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, whereas now that'd seem ridiculous, right? So I'm not saying uh, psilocybin had nothing to do with it, but there's also many other factors that they noted in there, including 40 hours of no sleep, right? Mm. Including... Uh, one article I read that this uh, gentleman was going to San Francisco to go onto a flight. So that's kind of basic adult rules. Don't do psilocybin for the first yeah. time if you're going to do some sort of flight. Yeah. Uh, don't, would, do it, don't do it on a plane and don't do it if you haven't slept for 40 hours. Yeah. And so this, this is, no matter what, psychedelics are coming. Uh, psilocybin mm-hmm. itself has been declared a breakthrough therapy by the FDA mm-hmm. for depression. These are starting to be a main staple in mental health as we pass laws, but we still have these stigma hurdles that we have to overcome. And lazy media like this does not help because yeah. it doesn't delve into it. It's just that clickbaity, hey, this got, this is a crazy story. Right. Let's throw in psychedelics in there. Let's not explain anything further. Let's not get any more information about it. But people are immediately going to do that association. You could do the any, anything else. Yeah. For instance, they always do this when there's some sort of tragedy oh, this guy visited a mosque a week ago. Is there some sort of correlation? Mm -hmm. Never dive into the actual facts around it. The other issue, and this is a much longer issue, is the mental health issue. It's known that pilots are afraid of addressing mental health concerns Mm -hmm. because they could lose their job. A friend who runs a similar nonprofit, No Fallen Heroes, he comes from a Top Gun fighter pilot and actually works with pilots through psychedelics because when they retire, they have been dealing with their mental health issues and their only resort is to turn to alcohol. Mm. So sorry to shock people who are flying, but there is a crisis of many veterans who become pilots, many others who have mental health issues, and these are the people who are flying our planes because they have unaddressed mental health issues and to just lump it in of psychedelics are gonna cause crazy people, there's no factual evidence to support that. In fact, if we had an honest conversation SSRIs and other mental health medication actually have a strong correlation, at least 8% cause psychosis. Hmm. There's yeah. never been similar research showing that association with psychedelics. And that's the uh, the big pharma advertising you just don't hear, Ryan. Right. Uh, General Steele, I want to bring you in here to ask basically what your path was to advocacy in this space, because as we were just talking about, there are decades of stigma to overcome, essentially. So for you, how did you come to this point, uh, advocating uh, on behalf of these important medications? Well, I want to thank you uh, for having me again. Uh, I think that if I had to summarize it in one word, 
at my age, it's a uh, frustration, uh, a little bit uh, in line with what Jesse said in his answer to your previous question. It's frustration with the lack of urgency uh, from our government for bold initiatives uh, to improve the mental health situation in our country, which we are in a crisis. And so uh, I have been involved in this in the form of research in my since I retired uh, from the Marine Corps in 1999 and have worked with scientists looking at comorbidities with traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress, military sexual trauma across the spectrum and looking at viable alternatives to SSRIs and the frustration with uh, the treatment protocols in the Veterans Administration health system, which uh, have been uh, lack of confidence for veterans. And so uh, people like Jesse, who are inspirational to me and part of the Veteran Mental Health Leadership Coalition, which I have the privilege to be the co-founder and leader of, there are over 45 organizations, we're all of the same ilk from coming from an experience and a frustration that we're not doing the things that need to be done, the initiatives like uh, research into psychedelic assisted therapy to be able to improve the mental health situation in our country. This is not about uh, decriminalization from our perspective or social use. It's about research that needs to be done in these medications, just like what was mentioned here, uh, MDMA and psilocybin. And that's what we're doing with the Breakthrough Therapies Act, uh, H.R. 1393 and S-689, with co-sponsors on both sides of the aisle, uh, bicameral support of getting legislation passed, which would reschedule these medicines to be able to do much more research in the space, moving them from Schedule 1, which is an illegal medicine, to Schedule 2, uh, because they have been granted that uh, condition from uh, uh, the FDA and, uh, and getting research done and expanding access uh, to all Americans who are experiencing these traumas in the mental health arena. It doesn't matter whether they're veterans or civilians or uh, first responders, uh, the medical field, uh, pilots, just like uh, what Jesse brought out, we just have to do a better job. So what brought me here was the frustration that it's not moving, it's not moving fast enough, and that far too many veterans have gone outside our country, and Jesse can speak to this because he's a living uh, example of helping those veterans, but go outside our country to get treatment using these medicines that save their lives that uh, they can't get in the United States legally. It's either underground or taking a risk of being arrested. So for yeah. me, it's changing the law to do that. And, and not just our uh, veterans, but also our president's son. Mm. So I, I wanted to, add, we talk a lot about MDMA and mushrooms, uh, but uh, Ibogaine is one that doesn't get enough attention uh, relative to the, the amount, the ability of it, has demonstrated to, to, to help people battle with addiction. And so Hunter Biden is known to have gone, I think, was it Mexico? Uh, More than likely. Yeah, for, for, an, for an Ibogaine treatment. And his sobriety, I think, is understood by people close to him, including his father, to be connected to Ibogaine. 
And so what are we seeing when it comes to the VA and to federal legislation or state legislation to open that up either to uh, either to veterans, others, and what can you tell us about Ibogaine in general? Absolutely. We're getting all the, the good poster child for yeah. psychedelics yeah. today. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Although so, if it moves Hunter from that Hunter to, you know, one who's just, you know, doing paintings for donors. No, absolutely. And, you know, on our side, everybody deserves some sort of form of healing. And what we're seeing from the statistics coming from the VA and other organizations is that modern Western accepted medicine is just not doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, the rates within the VA are abysmal, and we see with the suicide rates, I think the VA just came out, and they're always revising it, which just shows that they don't even have a basic handle on it. Anywhere from 22 to 44 veterans commit suicide a day, mm -hmm. right? And that just, this is over 20 years of war, which is even more shocking now that people are talking about getting into another war without even addressing mm -hmm. this underlying issue that's affecting hundreds of thousands of veterans. So... There's across the board of many of these different psychedelics are almost being rediscovered by the Western world of how effective they are only because the research has been squashed by, you know, these sort of media articles, uh, the war on drugs, uh, government propaganda, which has been very effective. Ibogaine has been particularly effective with uh, addiction. So they've, mm -hmm. they've established clinics in Mexico. There's a couple in Canada. And where um, addiction rates generally have abysmal sort of... Um, uh, you know, the, these, these uh, Malibu <laughs> resorts, more than <laughs> often right. people go into recidivism. But Ibogaine has actually shown very effective results where people go in with uh, opioid addiction and they go out of it not having that addiction, at least for a time being. And then there's also the same sort of psychological benefit where they can understand the root trauma that caused them that addiction in the first place. So it gives them this window of opportunity to really change their life in an effective way. And we're seeing this across the board with different psychedelics in different ways. And so there is research going on, but it's all been private funded through organizations like ours and not and sort of uh, shoulders turned from, from governments. And so for instance, uh, General Steele's working on a bill with Kentucky to finally get in government funding uh, for Ibogaine research from Settlements from the sack from the the, mm -hmm. the opioid uh, crisis that that the, the funds from that. Yeah, G General Steele, can you tell us about that that Kentucky bill? Uh, does it does yeah. it have serious prospects? I, we believe it does. Uh, there have been three hearings. We've been involved in the Veteran Mental Health Leadership Coalition, uh, assisting the Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission in the state of Kentucky, uh, which is has been meeting in regards specifically to using a proposed $42 million toward Ibogaine research and development out of this fund that Jesse just said. Uh, mm -hmm. Our position is that we think that this has great promise uh, by researching it. We're uh, thrilled to be working with the state of Kentucky who's out front on this because of the opioid crisis and the deaths that they have due to overdose and addiction and the uh, success that Ibogaine has proven uh, to be so effective against. Uh, it's clear that uh, the treatments as we've set up to this point aren't working and Ibogaine isn't the answer for everyone, but from our perspective, it has tremendous great promise. There was a hearing just last week, uh, a third I've testified there before uh, that commission but a hearing last week, we had a member of the FDA who uh, clearly is talking about the need to balance the potential risk and benefit of uh, Ibogaine through proper testing and 
research and is absolutely uh, that they'll be considering uh, the condition that we're in in this crisis and that Ibogaine is a viable uh, next step alternative. And Jesse, in early October, Gavin Newsom vetoed a psychedelic piece of legislation out in California. Uh, he, in his veto message, he said he wanted something more orderly, it seemed like, sent mm -hmm. back to him. Can you tell us what, what happened there and what's next uh, in, in California, potentially? Yeah, and this, this is very indicative of the frustration that General Steele mentioned earlier. Uh, this has been a, a over three-year process, uh, many iterations. By the time we actually got it through both uh, the, the houses in California, bipartisan support, wide popular support, it would have been an easy bill for Governor Newsom to sign. And what everybody speculates is it's because of his looking forward to what's next in, in his sort of career. Um, and using the veto, which in my opinion in this case is very undemocratic when it gets to that level of passing all this with a lot of work and everybody agreed it was a good bill, sort of baseline, and just a very basic people should not be criminalized for having personal possession of just grown psychedelics. So not even LSD that's synthetic. Hmm. So just mushrooms, just uh, all this other kind of stuff. As we can see, people are already using it illegally, but because we criminalize it, we put this sort of uh, blockade of any other people talking about it. There's there's a stigma around it. So any other organizations that can help out, that can bring much value to education, like you should not take mushrooms for the first time before uh, possibly piloting a right. plane, right. a right. baseline education, right. it has been prevented because of this criminality. And people are, we're seeing this, seeking their own mental health um, relief because mm -hmm. of the failure of this system. this All of this news is showing how much the system is failing. And so very disappointed in Governor Newsom. And you know it's, it's the very politician thing where he had this, hey, if you had just done this, it would have been great. Mm -hmm. He had more than three years, years to, to tell yeah. us. And it's, it's for the veteran population. A lot of us are disappointed because this is what we come to expect. Mm -hmm. These politicians will say, hey, I support the troops, hey, I have these veteran friends over here next time around, but what they do is they kick the can, they utilize our name, our voice to get where they need, but when we ask them the very basic to help us, they do not. And again, I wanna circle back, this is so important right now because we just got out of 20 years of war, there's over mm -hmm. 600,000 just from the past 20 years of war veterans with PTSD. There has not been effective legislation on a federal level to resolve this or address this or even talk about this. Mm -hmm. We haven't even looked at why we had 20 years of failed war and there's already people salivating about getting into the next war. No. The contractors get paid up front, we're still there hat in hand. My friends have to go to Capitol Hill mm. and beg politicians to pay attention to the suicide rate. There's no reason with that many veterans dying from suicide that this should not be a national crisis. We show how fast the government can work when it wants to, but there has not been the same sort of urgency around veterans and mental health issues, which is very tragic. And in my opinion, Governor Newsom's decision was self-serving and falls right in line yeah. with what we come to expect from politicians. Yeah. And General Steele, I'm, I'm curious what the reaction has been uh, from your kind of former comrades and colleagues in, in the military to you coming out and taking a position on this. Do you, do, do, you hear, do you hear more, good for you, this is desperately needed, 
Or do you hear more of there goes uh, you know crazy hippie General Steele out? <laughs> you know, with with. Well, the, I don't with, hear the latter, <laughs> uh, at least not not to my face. Uh, I, I would say uh, my generation. I'm a Vietnam era uh, military member. Two tours of uh, combat in Vietnam. My father, stepfather. I never knew my real father was a prisoner of war in World War II. And my son had three tours of combat in uh, Afghanistan. So we span the whole uh, gamut. But uh, the support that I've received from my peers, uh, once they are educated in regards to what and why, uh, they clearly understand the crisis and the mental health situation. I would say my generation of warrior is saying to me, uh, thank you for what you're doing and all of the people of the coalition uh, these veteran service organizations and groups like Jesse, uh, I wish we would have had that uh, for us. Because as Jesse said early on, I mean, alcohol was the drug of choice. It's a problem for all of the uh, my peers uh, and excessive use of alcohol. And we never got our arms around this. And uh, the situation now uh, with SSRIs and the VA is just making it worse. Uh, we're not getting any better. So tremendous amount of support. Uh, a lot of them want to know more. Uh, they are studying what we're doing and why, but on the whole, they're firm believers. I've had no pushback uh, to summarize uh, mm -hmm. the answer from any of my peers or even the leaders that I had that were ahead of me. I mean, I was a three-star general, my four-star um people that I'm very, very close to that re are also retired now, all of them very much support what we're doing because as Jesse indicated, uh, 600,000 out of the global war on terror, a 20 year war, and we haven't even touched the surface yet of them coming to the forefront with their issues. And we're still not wrapping our arms around the needs for viable alternative therapies, which we believe psychedelic assisted therapy will be a major player in changing the mental health crisis in our country. You're both optimistic. Yeah. And G General Steele, I also promised our uh, viewers earlier in the show that I'd pick your brain on, on a, some basic military questions. And Jesse, if you have any takes on these too, I'd, we, we'd love them. Got kind of two questions. Uh, one, and since you were uh, a veteran of, of Vietnam, I'm curious for your take on what the role, the tunnels uh, that, that Hamas has built over the years in, in Gaza might play uh, in a land invasion, given that uh, in, in Vietnam, the, the tunnel system was so effective for uh, guerrilla warfare, and that we had a there was a tunnel system in, in Afghanistan that was also problematic, and uh, you know for American troops that got le that got less attention. And the second, and maybe this is an ignorant question, why is Hamas so able to build missiles and rockets that they constantly are able to fire into Israel, but apparently has zero anti-aircraft capacity? Okay, that that I just can't understand. E either one of you want to take either one of those. Well, I'd be glad to start. Uh, sure. Uh, Go and, ahead, General. Uh, opening with the tunnel situation. Uh, it's obviously very complex. They've spent years doing it. And I believe that uh, just as in the case in Vietnam, uh, they were problematic, as you said. Uh, they're going to be much more problematic uh, if there's a ground and if and when the ground invasion takes place. So uh, there are significant obstacles to uh, overcome. A lot of uh, challenges like we had in Vietnam. Uh, some of my uh, high school classmates were of the size, if you will, physical size 
that they were known affectionately as tunnel rats. Hmm. And uh, they were traumatized by their experience going into the tunnels. Tremendous warriors uh, did the job, but traumatized by that experience. So in the case of your second question, uh, I would say they're being more supplied with these weapons of rockets than manufacturing them. I watched uh, your program the other day. I thought it was very thoughtful as you were looking uh, in these kinds of areas and questions, but I think it's more external supplies uh, that are providing them with those capabilities. And uh, uh, the, the third question regarding why don't they have uh, anti-air uh, capabilities, uh, I, I'm not qualified to answer that right now. Yeah, from the from the tunnel, it's it's just it's it would be a nightmare. I mean, if you you remember, I mean, uh, you were nodding your head at the Afghanistan tunnels. Afghanistan you know, yeah. tunnels. I mean, but I was also thinking like World War II. Japan mm -hmm. had uh, notorious for the tunnels, and that factored into our decision of how entrenched they were. Right. Mm -hmm. And especially without our understanding, it's a completely different warfare, uh, and it's 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 would be unlike what we've seen. In Afghanistan, generally, it was pretty open, pretty flat, yeah. so that allowed a lot more uh, air support, all sorts of other um, intelligence that we just wouldn't have. But then we're factoring not only the urban warfare and the tunnels, which we really just haven't seen for, for quite a while, and just the density of the population, it factors into all these other uh, dynamics because if you're going into there and there you're going against a... a a, the Hamas that's not going to wear uh, uniforms, mm -hmm. and you're in this very dense population, it's going to be chaos in, in a lot of factors. And then you're bringing in other serious military, potentially, uh, like Iran, as well as what happened in Afghanistan when I was over there. There was an estimation that this was a little bit deeper into the, the war, that the majority of the people we fight were fighting weren't even Taliban or from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. The vast majority were from other countries, other ne networks, surrounding countries that were just there because that's where the fight was. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is even more that case where it's it's going to be sort of that ideological, not only fighting us, fighting Israel in this centered spot that's just going to be a, a hotbed. And again, we have not even done an after actions review on the last wars. Right. Why were we there for 20 years? And neither the general are our peaceniks. You know, like I would re-enlist again if, uh, if I was at that age. And there's there's a unspoken agreement or there should be in any culture or any country between the serving veterans and the politicians. We will risk our lives, but we expect them to have intelligent um, analysis of the wars we get into, mm -hmm. right? And we did not have that analysis with the previous wars. And I'm not saying one way or the other of that, but we need to actually factor in the real cost, not just the cost to the war contractors, but the lives as well as the mental health issues that we have not even factored in with these past few wars. And the very least we can do is at least research therapies that could be beneficial to people coming home. Yeah. With the, with the moral wounds and the emotional and psychological wounds, as well as the, the physical ones. And so the organizations are Reason for Hope, uh, Heroic Hearts Project. Uh, where can people find more information on this? So heroicheartsproject.org mm -hmm. is our website. And as the general said, our main uh, goal is that we help connect veterans to countries where this is legal. Right. As tragic as that sounds, veterans are going to other countries to get life-saving support. 
that's where we come into play. You need to make sure they do it as safely as possible. As safely with support so these sort of stories don't happen. Uh, If the uh, the general, I think it's reasonforhope.org, he can correct me if that's wrong. No, that's correct. And the Veteran Mental Health Leadership Coalition also, which is the comprised of these over 45 veteran service organizations that we have, uh, all part of doing the same thing that Jesse just said, uh, advocacy in this space. We really appreciate you. We really appreciate you guys joining us and, and for the fight you're waging. Thank you so much. Absolutely. That I want to tell you. Oh, I, go I, ahead, General Steele. Please, General. Well, I just want to say uh, thank you for what you're doing too. Uh, having had the opportunity to look at some of your work, it's thoughtful, uh, uh, thought-provoking, uh, but very necessary right now. And so, affording us the opportunity to come on to talk about this specific issue, uh, we hope we have an opportunity to come back. Uh, but this is the space. If we're going to do something differently, because what we've done and what we are currently doing is the true definition of insanity, providing the same treatment protocols that do not work for this population. As it comes forward, we're not there yet with the 600,000. As they come forward, it's like a tip of the iceberg right now. And it's the Herculean work that uh, Jesse Gould is doing in his organizations and others but to have to go outside our country to get treatment to save your life is unconscionable. And it is the definition of suicide to think that you can do the same thing over and over that we have been doing now and get a different result. So thank you for what you're doing in this space to help us get the message out. All right, well, thank you for saying so. Absolutely. I think we have a new Breaking Points premium <laughs> subscriber there. Hope so. <laughs> no, I, think, I, think, I think General Steele's hooked. It's, it's, it's good you say that, Ryan, because you can now go to breakingpoints.com to <laughs> subscribe, a, as uh, our producers are telling us to make sure we remind you, breakingpoints.com. And the thing is, with CounterPoints, if you are a premium subscriber, you get the full show um, uninterrupted early on YouTube, as opposed to the few clips and from Spotify the show. And all those other corporate platforms. Right. Yeah. So yeah. You, you get to support our work and uh, continue coverage of issues that mainstream media, so-called mainstream media, doesn't want to touch, like psychedelics for veterans. Super important. You don't have to, you don't often hear about it elsewhere. Uh, and if you subscribe here, we will do our best to continue bringing coverage just like that. All right. Chris and Sagar be here tomorrow. We'll be back here next week. Thanks for joining us. You dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. 
Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.